is from Isaiah 35, verse 1 to 10. The desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Like crocus, it will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it. The splendor of Carmel and Sharon, they will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. Strengthen thy feeble hands. Steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand will become a pool, the thirsty ground bubbling springs. In the haunt where jackals once lay, grass and reeds and papyrus will grow. And the highway will be there. It will be called the way of holiness. It will be for those who walk on that way. The unclean will not journey on it. Wicked fools will not go about it. No lion will be there, nor will any beast. They will not be found there. But only the redeemed will walk there. And those the Lord has rescued will return. They will enter Zion with, with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them and sorrow and sighing will flee away. That is God's word. Let's pray. Our God, thank you for the privilege of gathering today to sing and to be together and now to look at this passage of scripture. And so with these words open in front of us, we ask that you would open our hearts, our minds to hear, to understand what you want to say to us today. We ask all this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. During the month of December, the Advent season here at Reality Church London, we're in a series looking at passages from the book of Isaiah. And the reason we're doing that is because here in the book of Isaiah, the prophet is bringing a message of joy. He's telling God's people that they can experience true, deep, lasting joy. And what's stunning about that fact is Isaiah was writing during a period in Israel's history that was one of the darkest, most difficult moments that they had ever experienced. And so what you have is Isaiah saying there's joy that's possible even amidst the most challenging and heartbreaking moments of your life. And that's the kind of joy that I want. That's the kind of joy that you want. Not just superficial joy that's based on pleasant circumstances, but a deep, almost unshakable joy that's with you no matter the circumstance. That's the craving of the human heart. That's the craving of every human heart. The 17th century French philosopher Blaise Pascal put it this way. He said, all people seek happiness. That is without exception. Whatever different means they employ 
we are all working towards this same end. That's the common thread running through the tapestry of every person's life, this deep desire for joy and gladness. But you know that the experience of joy, the experience of lasting happiness often remains elusive. We often get in our own way. The challenges and circumstances of life often come crashing down and they squash our joy. So we need to pay attention to what Isaiah is saying because he's offering a joy that's possible in the midst of the worst times. So today we're in Isaiah 35 to continue this series. And here in this passage, we see four things that we need to understand about the kind of joy that God offers to his people. The kind of joy God offers, we need to see a promise, a paradox, a person, and then finally the path. This is how God's joy comes into your life. A promise, a paradox, a person, and a path. So let's take a look. First, what is the promise that God gives? It's there in verse 4 of our passage, your God will come. Your God will come. That, Isaiah says, is the hope or the basis for joy in your life. To understand what he's saying, though, let's look at the whole passage and get a sense for what his message is all about. If you look in verses 1 and 2 of Isaiah 35, Isaiah describes something via a metaphor that is stunning. So I'll read to you the first couple of verses. He says, The desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. A little bit later, Isaiah gives the picture of the burning sand will become like pools. If you've ever been to the sea on a really hot summer day and your feet have been on the sand, you know it gets quite warm and you're looking for somewhere cool to get your toes into. Isaiah is saying that that feeling of being parched, exposed in the sun, the wilderness that's deathly, it's going to turn into a garden. It's going to bloom. There's going to be streams. There's going to be abundance in life in places where there was only death and decay. He's describing something that should not, humanly speaking, be happening, and yet it does. He's describing complete, surprising, supernatural transformation. But it's a metaphor, and it's a metaphor for what's supposed to happen in the lives of God's people. So if you go all the way to the end of the passage in verse 10, this is what it's all about. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. Isaiah starts the passage with a metaphor. The wilderness is going to spring to life. The desert is going to be filled with water. What's that illustrating? The transformation that God wants to bring into the lives of his people. That sorrow and sighing is going to run for the hills, and joy and gladness will take its place. Notice in verse 10, the language that Isaiah uses, he says, gladness and joy will overtake you. It's almost a military metaphor. It's almost as if he's saying, you are going to be invaded by joy and gladness. And when joy and gladness come storming into your life, sorrow and sighing, they're going to run for the hills. They're going to get out of town. That's the transformation that Isaiah is saying is possible for the people of God. 
how does it happen? Verse 4, your God will come. The reason that you can experience this kind of incredible transformation from desert death to life and abundance, from graves to gardens, from sorrow and sighing to gladness and joy, is because your God will come. In other words, for Isaiah, the source for joy is not in pleasant circumstances. It's not in changed events and different relationships. It's the presence of God with his people. It's the presence of God coming to his people that is meant to be the source and the basis for joy. And so we want to camp for just a minute on that phrase, your God will come. Because when we see that promise for us, it really is an anchor for joy no matter what we face. So think with me, your God will come. If you go back to the verses, we get a sense for who this God is. Listen, verse 3. Strengthen the feeble hands. Steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong and do not fear. Your God will come. And friends, this is the key. Whose God is this? This is the God of the people who have feeble hands, weak knees, and fearful hearts. What does it mean to have feeble hands? It literally in the Hebrew means hands that shake. It's people who can't perform the way that they're supposed to. Imagine a surgeon or a seamstress who is trying to do a surgery or sew something together and their hands are shaking. It can't be done. And so it's an image for someone who's not able to complete the actions that are assigned to them. It's someone who constantly falls short, feeble hands, and weak knees. This is a person who's never confident. This is a person who's filled with uncertainty. They have a kind of timidity that marks their life. And people with fearful hearts. Someone who's always afraid of what might come in the future. Someone who's always asking what if and how about and I don't know. In other words, this is a weak people. This is a broken people. This is a people weary and weighed down by life. And Isaiah says, your God will come. This is the God for the weak and for the broken. Some of you are ashamed about things in your life, the weaknesses and the ways that you fall short. God is not ashamed to be called your God. God is not ashamed of you. This God becomes lowly to be with lowly and broken people. And that promise, your God will come, is the basis for joy, according to Isaiah. He's your God. No matter how feeble your hands, no matter how weak your knees, and no matter how fearful your heart. But that leads us to a paradox. Yes, on one hand, we root ourselves in the promise, this God will come, your God will come. But that leads us now to a paradox. Look how he comes. Back to verse 4. He will come with vengeance and with divine retribution. This isn't what I would expect. If Isaiah has a message of joy and he says God will come, you would almost expect him to say he comes bringing cookies or mulled wine. He comes to host a barbecue. But when Isaiah describes the coming or the arrival of God, he says he's coming with vengeance 
and with divine retribution. Those are big words. Those are scary words. Now, vengeance we can get on board with. Vengeance is wrongs that are done to you. And so God comes to avenge. God comes to make right what is wrong. And we like that. We need that kind of God. Because we know that there's all kinds of suffering. And for some of you, suffering right now is personal. Things that have been done to you. But all the evil in the world, the suffering, the neglect, the injustice, the racism, the sexism, the tribalism, all of that, we need a God of vengeance. We don't need a grandfather in the sky who just wants to give hugs. We need someone to come and fix what is broken. And so Isaiah says, when God comes, he's coming with vengeance. And we can get excited about that. But Isaiah also says he's going to come with retribution. And retribution isn't about wrongs that you suffer. Retribution is about what wrong you have done. And Isaiah says, when this God comes, he's going to bring retribution. He's coming in judgment. And this is the part of God, this is the part of the Christian story that's harder for us to acknowledge. We don't mind a God who comes to deal with evil out there. But the message of the Bible is that evil is also in here. It's inside each one of us. And that is the hard truth that Isaiah is asking us to consider. That God's coming means judgment. It means exposure. If you've ever been to a restaurant, I know it's not as common nowadays as it once was, but if you've ever been to a restaurant in the evening, you know they're more dimly lit. And so you go to the toilet, you see yourself in the mirror, and you say, I'm looking pretty good. You know, I, uh, yeah, all right. And then you get home and you turn the lights on and you see yourself in the full light and you say, nope, not as good as I thought. <laughs> what happens? Light exposes. Light reveals. And Isaiah is saying that when God comes in all of his glory, he's going to reveal. He's going to expose. And that's always what happens when people come into the very presence of God. Think Isaiah chapter 6, earlier in this very story, the presence of God comes down. And what does Isaiah say? Woe is me. I'm undone. We have in Luke chapter 5 where Jesus is with Peter there on the Sea of Galilee and Jesus performs an amazing miracle and Peter responds not by saying thank you, but he says, depart from me, I am a sinful man. In the presence of glory, you feel exposed. In the presence of infinite light and majesty, you are aware that you are not what you should be. And the Bible calls this sin. Sin is the great problem of the human heart. And sin, by the way, we say this often here at Reality, sin is not first and foremost a set of behaviors, you know, doing bad things. Sin is a posture of the heart. It's a posture of the heart that says to God, I don't want you and I don't need you. It's trying to be your own savior, your own Lord and master. And we need to think of sin in that way because if you think of sin only in terms of behavior, Comparing yourself to other people, well, you know, I'm not perfect, but I'm not as bad as them. Then you'll never understand why we need a God of retribution, a God of judgment. But when we begin to understand that that sin, that posture of the heart that says to God, I don't want you, I don't need you, that that's in us. We recognize that we can't stand on our own in the presence of the holy God. There's something wrong inside of us. 
not just around us. And we need, actually, the judgment of God. Bishop Hanley Mool, he was a bishop in Durham a couple hundred years ago, and he put it this way, pardon the old language, but describing how we're all, in fact, guilty. We're all, in fact, sinful. He put it this way, the harlot, the liar, the murderer, they're all short of God's glory. But so are you. Perhaps they stand at the bottom of a mine and you on the crest of an alp. But you are as little able to touch the stars as they. We're all sinful and have fallen short of the glory of God. Not behavior, but posture of the heart. And so we need a God who comes not just to right the wrongs out there, but to deal with the sin in here. But of course, (laughs) that begs the question, how is it that this God can come and deal with evil without ending us? If we need a God who addresses what's wrong in the world, recognizing that wrong is in our hearts, how can we stand in his presence? What hope is there? That's the paradox of the Bible. And it's answered by the person we meet at Christmas. It's answered by the person that we meet at Christmas, the Lord Jesus Christ. The way God answered this intense paradox, our need for grace and the need for judgment to come into this world, is through a baby being born in Bethlehem. Let me read to you. This is from Matthew Matthew's account of the birth of Jesus, what we celebrate in the month of December. But an angel came to Joseph, who was engaged to be married to Mary, Jesus' mom. And the angel says to Joseph, Mary will give birth to a son. And you are to give him the name Jesus. Because he will save his people from their sin. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet Isaiah, The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. This baby that's to be born has two names, Jesus and Emmanuel. And until we understand this child to be both Jesus and Emmanuel, we'll never have the joy that God wants. But when you see that the answer to this paradox, how does a holy God end evil without ending you? The answer to that question is in the baby born whose name is Jesus and Emmanuel. That's the pathway not only to joy but to exhilarating life. Jesus and Emmanuel. So let's take a look first. What do we learn if this child really is Emmanuel? Well, that name means God with us. Your God will come. It's as if the angel is saying, see, God kept his promise. He said that he would come, and he has. And so this child is not an ordinary child, but this is God himself in human flesh. And so you must call him Emmanuel. And the reason why that matters, the reason why that's so significant, it's easy to get lost in the theology of it all. The incarnation, how does God become a human being? That's important, and I'd love to talk about that with you. But let's assume for a minute that it's true, that God really became a person in Jesus Christ. Do you know what that means? It means that God is love. The essence of the nature of God is that he is a loving God. Why? Because that's what love always does. 
love always comes down. Love always stoops. You know, we have children running around our church, which is really fun. And when you want to talk to a child, what do you do? You stoop. You get down on your knees to look at them, to be with them. Why? Love always comes down. Love never says, you need to get to my level. But love says, I'm going to come to yours. Love is always willing to condescend. Not to be condescending, (laughs) but to stoop down. To get on the level of the person that you love. And if God became human at Christmas, do you know what he's saying? I love you so much that I came down to your level. I didn't just remain in glory, but I took on flesh to live and to bleed and to speak with you in ways that you could understand. The incarnation, the birth of Jesus, Emmanuel, means that God is love. Sinclair Ferguson puts it this way, whatever gifts that you may have, love always means that you come down. It means that you use those gifts for the good of others and not to make yourself feel good. It means that you're willing to do things that are uncomfortable or inconvenient or that go unnoticed. Real love always comes down. And we know that because love came down at Christmas. Emmanuel, God is with us. He's a loving God. But also Jesus, not just Emmanuel, but Jesus. And what does that mean? The Lord, our Savior, the Lord who saves. And the angel says you're to call his name Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sin. The greatest hindrance to your joy is your sin. And sin, as we said, is not just behavior, it's a posture of the heart. At its essence, sin is self-love. Sin is a person saying, I love self more than God or anyone else, and I'm going to live for that self. Now, we don't always say it like that, but that's the function of our heart. And Jesus says the only way that you can have the kind of joy that will heal your heart is if that sin is dealt with, if that sin is paid for. And that's what Jesus came to do. It's so easy in December to think of Christmas as mold wine and trees and presents and Christmas parties, and that's all good. But the first Christmas was a rescue mission. It was God coming into hostile territory to save people from the greatest enemy. You should call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sin. And that's what he came to do. And that's what the end of his life is all about. As Isabel prayed earlier, God in the flesh, Jesus born for what purpose? To die. As a substitute, as a sacrifice, as a savior. Jesus came to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. To free us from the greatest enemy. To deliver us from sin. To deliver you from bondage of always having to live for yourself. And always having to live as though everything depends on you. Like you have to figure it all out on your own. Jesus came to save his people from their sin. That's how the paradox gets answered. The way in which God can deal with sin without ending you is through Jesus Christ and through his death on the cross. The answer to the paradox is in the person we meet at Christmas. Now what does all this mean? What's the application? What's the practical impact? It means, if you're a Christian, if you trust in Jesus, if you give your life to him, 
God invites you onto a journey. He brings you onto a path. This is where we'll close our sermon. But verse 8 of our passage, Isaiah says this, a highway will be there. It will be called the way of holiness. This is fascinating because remember what Isaiah is describing. He's describing a wilderness or a desert, a parched land, a difficult terrain. And he says, out of nowhere, God will create a highway. Now, you and I think highways and we think traffic and we think petrol shortages and we think all that stuff. But for an ancient person to hear that a highway would be made in the desert would have been a wonderful thing. If you've ever been to a part of the world where the infrastructure isn't as developed, perhaps you've taken a car ride on a really bumpy road trying to get somewhere, and you know how awful and how difficult and how slow that is. A highway would be a wonderful thing because it would enable you to safely and more quickly get to where you're going. And God says, for my people, the transformation that I want to bring is going to be a highway through the desert. It's going to be a way forward where there was no way forward. It's a path where there only seemed like peril. In other words, God is saying, following me is not boring. It's not stagnant. It's an adventure. It's a journey. It's a highway through the wilderness. And he says it's a highway of holiness. It's a highway of holiness. Now, holiness is a religious word. For many of us, when we think of holy, we think of people who are kind of fuddy-duddy, who are moral and rigid. That's not what holiness means. Holiness, before it's a moral term, is simply a term that describes surrender or devotion. Something is holy because it's given completely to God. Holiness is a person who says, my life for you, God. I give everything I am and everything I have for your purposes. And friends, let me tell you, there is nothing more exciting and exhilarating than holiness. There is nothing boring about following God. I'm not saying that it always feels exciting, but there's nothing more ultimately life-giving and exhilarating than following Jesus. Ray Ortland, a pastor writing about this passage, puts it this way, following Christ, you are never at a dead end, but always at a threshold. Isaiah is calling us to create that atmosphere of expectancy. Because God is coming to us with fullness of salvation. There's a highway. There's a road. There's a way forward. And so the invitation of Christmas is for each of us to experience, to create that atmosphere of expectancy. To say, if God is with me, if God is for me, what could happen today? It's not boring. There's nothing boring about a life devoted to following Jesus. That's what Isaiah is saying. There is a path. And so the invitation for us today as we come now to our time of response is to ask for God to create within us that atmosphere of expectancy. To say to God, where are you calling me? How are you calling me forward to live in and to experience this fullness of joy that you seek to bring because of Jesus and because of what he's accomplished? Let's pray for that now. Our God, we thank you for the promise that you make a highway in the wilderness, that you bring everlasting joy to crown our heads. 
joy that can be with us in the midst of the hardest times and the difficultest circumstances. So Lord, we pray for that now. We pray that just as you came at Christmas, as you came in the person of Jesus, so now you would come by the power of your spirit into this place and that you would bring transformation, that you would cause right now in this place for streams to arise in the deserts of our souls, that you would strengthen feeble hands and weak knees, that you would calm fearful hearts. Lord, pour out your spirit. Help us to encounter you now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.